Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Thursday morning to you. Mike McNamara for a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. Right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. Hope you're having a good Thursday so far. And uh, hopefully we can spend a little time together and make it uh, in some way, shape, or form either a more, either a richer Thursday or at least a little bit more entertaining. But hopefully, at some point, intellectually uh, beneficial to you. So, uh, so good morning on the 15th day of July. So, halfway through July, at about noon today. There you go. And, uh, which means... School's not too far off because most schools start in August. So, yeah, got that going for you there, kids. Congratulations on that. Um, today, uh, the Mensa Brothers going to join me here in about 10 minutes. And um, we're going to talk about a report that was delivered last week to. Uh, it was commissioned by Senator Tom Cotton, Congressman Jim Banks, Dan Crenshaw, and Mike Gallagher. Gallagher, Marine. Cotton, I think 82nd Airborne guy. Crenshaw, I think he's a SEAL, right? Dan Crenshaw... Uh, former United States Navy SEAL, right? Um, you'll remember him visually because he's got a 
a no pun intended because he's got a patch over one eye, so very distinct um, member of Congress from Texas. And then Jim Banks, um, did he serve? James Edward Banks, American military officer and politician serving in the U.S. Representatives for Indiana's 3rd District. So Jim Banks served in... uh, Banks serves, and that's currently, in the United States Navy Reserve as a Supply Corps officer. Um, So there you have it. So all of them... Uh, members of the American military. Um, Two members of the United States Navy, a soldier, and a Marine. So they commissioned a study. It's done by General Robert Schmittel, United States Marine Corps retired, who I've never met, and Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, United States Navy. So, and then... (laughs) Let me uh, let me read you the conclusion of the report, right. um, and I'll do this before they come on, and so kind of set the page, and we'll do a quick open, and I'll see if there's any major headlines. So this is the conclusion, the last paragraph of the executive summary. Concern within the Navy runs so high that when asked whether incidents such as the two destroyer collisions in the Pacific, the surrender of a small craft to the Iranian Republican Guards Corps in the Arabian Gulf, the burning of the Bonham Rashard and other incidents were part, if they were part of a broader cultural or leadership problem in the Navy, 94% of the interviewees responded yes. 3% said no, 3% they were said unsure. And when asked if the incidents were directly connected, 55% said yes, 16% said no, and 29% said unsure. The sentiment that the Navy is dangerously off course was overwhelming. Now, um, it, what's interesting in the, just those two little polls that they run out there, um, was this part of a broader cultural-slash-leadership problem in the Navy? Only 3% said that they were unsure. 94% said that they were the, said yes, and 3% said no. Right? Um and then when you asked if they were linked, 29% said they were unsure. Okay, which, I mean, I think is reasonable. Are all these things linked? I don't know. But when you ask if if the broader cultural leadership problem exists, that 29% that were unsure about whether it was linked were sure that the problem existed. So I think that's that's interesting. And then let me just read you the, the final paragraph Um of of the of the entire study. Now, just so you know, if you go to the Almerin Radio Read Board, uh, this study is there. So if you want to if you want to download the PDF and read it, it's uh, it's available to you there. Um, a major yeah. So just go to almerinradio.com, dot uh, com, click on Blog Read Board, and you'll see a picture of the report and a picture of Senator Cotton next to it. So click on that, and you'll find the link. A major peer level conflict. This is the last paragraph of the of the study. A major peer-level conflict in the 21st century will likely play out largely in the naval theaters of the operation, 
unlike the surface Navy's last major war, which concluded 76 years ago. Such a conflict will likely proceed swiftly and not permit significant time for organizational learning once it is underway. U.S. national security depends upon the surface Navy being an effective team. The most important Navy leader, Navy leader, the most important step Navy leaders can take is to prioritize above all else war fighting and lethality. Their paramount responsibility to fight and win on the seas must be communicated by senior commanders in wardrooms, over email, in meetings, and most important to the American people. The sailors interviewed for this report do not believe the Navy prioritizes fighting and winning because Navy leaders do not talk about fighting and winning. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis said in his testimony that, quote, the United States does not have a preordained right to victory on the battlefield. Unless changes are made, the Navy risks losing the next major conflict. That's pretty serious shit right there. So, um, so good morning <laughs> on that note. Good morning. Uh, the Mensa Brothers will join me in about six minutes. The United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning. <laughs> Dedicated to um, members of Congress who uh, who essentially commissioned this study, and uh, uh, led by Senator Tom Cotton, um, Congressman Jim Banks, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, and Congressman Mike Gallagher, um, Mike Gallagher uh, from Wisconsin, uh, former Marine. It's dedicated to them. I mean, uh, to me, getting it right pretty important. Uh, the nation's been dancing around this kind of. Sh- shit for a while and uh good on them for um for obviously creating a document that has a lot of credibility by virtue of the way it was conducted and something that you know maybe people can move forward on so just dedicated to them and their work uh nice going uh well done
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. That's funny. Come on. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. All right, we'll check the weather and then we'll get the Mensa brothers on here. Um, currently in Quantico, it is partly sunny in 83. Down the coast of Camp Lejeune, it is sunny in 87. 29 Palms, sunny in 90. Camp Pendleton, sunny in 70. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark, partly cloudy in 71. Okinawa, dark, cloudy in 82. Manila in the Philippines, dark, cloudy 80. And in Darwin, warmed up a little bit, clear, dark, and 75. At the home of All Marine Radio, partly cloudy and 71 degrees. Um, since I have a minute, uh, top story in Stars and Stripes is, and I'm just going to, Alabama military base is the first in the U.S. to require vaccination proof amid rising COVID rates. So, obviously a slow news day if we're talking COVID proof of identity shit. Top five stories in early bird real quick. One, House appropriators advance $706 billion defense bill. And that page has not been updated since yesterday. So not even going to bother with it. Yeah, how about that? Stop, top story in the Wall Street Journal is jobless claims fall to pandemic low. So um, anyway, much in the news is the Democrats... Uh, attempt to do infrastructure alone. So, um, but that's not our subject today. So, we will get the uh, we'll get the Mensa brothers on, and uh, we'll begin to talk about this report. Uh, Tim Lynch joins me from McAllen, Texas. Tim, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing good, Mac. How about yourself? Uh, you said that in a very folksy, matter-of-fact way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all you got. Yeah, no, I've I've, uh, I've been at. Uh, I just got back from the gym. I've got the endorphins flowing. I'm ready to talk, man. Are you? Well, congr- oh, yeah. congratulations on the whole endorphin thing. Jeff Kenny joins us with a very somber look on his face uh, from a vehicle someplace. I assume in Southern California, but I'm not sure. Jeffrey, how are you? Yep. 
Why are you looking? Why are you looking so somber today? It's a it's a stark contrast from the uh, the joyful, happy, go lucky Jeff Kenny of last week when you were sitting in the backyard of your uh, of your lot, new, brand new, spanking new Las Vegas home. Yeah, you can say that twice. Well, uh, <laughs> no, it's just I got a couple balls in the air. I'm not uh, I'm not center. Uh, I'm just you know. Okay. So fitting everything in. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And. Uh, yeah. Will Cosentini joins us from I don't even know where Will is. It looks like that looks like his home. Yeah, I I uh, I am here in beautiful Kansas. I got home last night. Uh, good to be home. Uh, yeah, always. Particularly, I was in Washington D.C., so always good to escape from there. What were you? You were in D.C. for a funeral. Yeah, funeral. My uh, my last roommate at the Naval Academy passed away in January, and he was interred uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, on Tuesday. So, um, yeah, the Navy did a good job uh, at the cemetery. Uh, the cemetery always does a good job, and uh, a good turnout of our uh, – of classmates and you know people that known each other for going on 40 years now so uh, it's good to see those guys not under great circumstances um but uh that's what it was so right. the best we can do right. yeah exactly exactly got it all right um you guys have uh, I, I i know you guys have read the pdf that i sent out for lack of uh for brevity I will call it the cotton, the cotton report, uh, the United States Navy uh, service fleet, um, and so um, I, I first want to ask: Do you, does anybody know Lieutenant General Schmidl or Rear Admiral Mark yeah. Montgomery? Do you, anybody know either one of those guys? And and what can you tell us about them? Uh, I'll go first. Schmidl was a air officer for one nine on our second Westpac deployment. So being a helicopter company XO, I, I interacted with him a little. He was just a highly competent guy, but I've, I've never seen a battalion air officer who wasn't a highly competent guy. Um, F-18 driver by trade, funnier than shit, like most F-18 drivers. And uh, he was he was a real asset to, to the battalion when he served there. But, th- but then again, I've never seen a bad air officer. A couple questionable facts, but never a bad air officer. Got it. Yeah, he uh, he ended up, he was in Millsack, I want to say in the Jones years, but I, I might not be right there. And then he ended up, uh, I think he worked at Cape uh, early in the, in the Amos administration, and then he was DC Aviation, I think, late in the uh, in General Amos's tenure as a commandant. And he uh, he's a smart guy, and uh, both of those jobs require sort of a bureaucratic knife fighter inside the building. Um, and uh, the guy who becomes DC Aviation. Uh, and unfortunately, in my time in the headquarters, uh, I thought were very much aviators and then Marines. But I think that's the nature of the job. It's all about the budget at that point. So, Got it. but definitely a smart guy. Got it. Uh, Jeff, 
Uh, do you know either one? I never met him. I just heard about him from the crowd. You know. Got it. I couldn't even put my place place it until he mentioned that. Got it. Got it. Got it. The um, uh, Rear Admiral Montgomery, interestingly enough, was implicated in the Fat Leonard thing. And uh, he, w- <laughs> yeah, he was given a uh, secretarial letter of censure by Richard Spencer um, when he, I guess, shortly before his retirement. Um, and so it's interesting. Um, his inclusion in all of this with, with that. So he must be very highly thought of, at least in some circles. So uh, so this report gets commissioned essentially by uh, four veterans of the United States military, uh, Cotton of the Army, uh, Banks of the Navy, Crenshaw of the Navy, and Mike Gallagher of the Marine Corps. Um, so uh, I sent you guys a, a little format a bit ago. Um, we'll start with the Nightingale. Um General thought on what you read, Jeff. Well, um, I think uh, you know, we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. You know, the uh, distraction caused by um, social issues you know, that's foisted on all the services in general, but the Navy in particular, it seems, because of uh, you know, the nature of being on board ship and a you know, closed society and so forth. So, and you and we've also been reading. The historical, uh, you know, accounts of intense naval warfare in, uh, you know, in the Pacific and so forth, which led us to conversations about some of the attacks, like on the coal and everything. And there, it's an unforgiving atmosphere where uh, you have to be prepared for it, and you have to be prepared at all times. And uh, that a lot of the things that have happened accident-wise in the Navy, to include the Bonhomme Richard thing, and possibly the uh, the AAV thing, is a uh, you know, it's kind of a um, indicator of a lack of focus on the correct things. And that one naval officer, female, um, I think it was a, a lieutenant, said, you know, uh, when we burn, we're, all of us, whatever color we are, whatever sex orientation, we're all going to burn the same way. And that aluminum starts melting, you know. So that was my take on it. All right. General thought, uh, Tim? <sighs> We've all known from our from the time that we were we were lieutenants that the Navy surface community had some identity issues. It was rather apparent. I was not aware of how 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 badly they've suck, how how absolutely um, incapable they seem to be of focusing on corrective action that would make a substantial difference in their performance uh, tactically. It's, it is uh, it is alarming some of the stuff that I read in that report. And quite frankly, as much as we've been dumping on the Navy, I had no idea things were that bad. Okay. Well, general thought. Um, yeah, the report, I think there's a lot of good stuff there, but I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's a little too anecdotal for me. Uh, it says in the executive summary that the discussion is supposed to uh, inform Congress with an emphasis on subjects including funding, maintenance planning, administrative management, and operational deployment. And it, I, I, I think that that takes a little bit more data. Um, and then they only give you 
two snapshots of data, and they're the two figures, which are pretty, I mean, telling the, the two charts that they put up there. So I, I think that if they wanted it to have true impact, it needed to be a little bit, bit more data driven because the pull quotes that you can get out of there, uh, I'll just tell you right now, I, I was on my LinkedIn this morning and I don't know where the feed came from, but there's a lot of pushback on these pull quotes uh, that got sort of injected into the body of the, uh, of the report. And so people are just gonna be arguing about that crap instead of, you know, if Cotton really wanted to try and change something, um, as opposed to using this to just beat someone over the head with. So th that's my take, uh, sort of 10,000 foot view of it. Um, the, you know, we, again, to echo, we've been talking about sort of the leadership thing for a long time. This this could have, this is not going to end up uh, having any impact because um, it's going to be seen as a, as a partisan hatchet job. So that's unfortunate um, because I, I think that they could have uh, developed something that could be useful. Uh, my general comment is, is I thought the report um, was powerful in by by the way they conducted it, right? That and I thought that um, the seventy seven interviews they did, um, you know, and not simply a data poll. I I thought allowed it to them to have conversations and then those quotes extracted that people that Will is just talking about. I thought that's what made the the report powerful, and and uh and I would. I would disagree with the, the that it's not going to be impactful because on the heels of this, you're going to have the Bon Armour investigation released, and you're going to see yet another example of this in motion. And so I I I would I would I would disagree with Will, which which has happened in our life before. So uh, that, but um, I thought the methodology that they used was good because it was it was not simply a data driven poll. It seemed to be with experienced naval officers you know, who, who had experience commanding and, and then had, had seen these, these, these problems in motion, uh, for, for probably some of them for, for a few decades. So I, yeah, Mac, my point with that is that, that I think it could have been more useful if they could have integrated some more data to it. Like even the, the first two charts and I don't have them up in front of me, you know, they're like uh, they aggregate people's views into some data. Right. So and then when you put in your your purpose of this is to drive funding, maintenance, planning. Um, those are data things. Right. So you, you're not going to change funding and maintenance planning because a bunch of people you talked to said the same thing about something. Right. You're just you're not going to have an impact on that. Administrative management, uh, maybe. And then operational employment. Also, operational employment is a data driven thing. How many ships you got? How much time do they spend out? How much maintenance are you missing, et cetera? Those are if you really want to change that. Um, now, if you want to change culture, that's 
that's different, but that wasn't put up there. So the, you know, the headline and the body of the story are not matching up. Okay. And I'm just pulling the stuff that they wrote. Got it. All right. Um, and and I don't, again, I don't I don't disagree with you know we're, we're more data included, you know, like you see in the at the at the end of the executive summary, which very visibly shows uh, there's two figures. Do you believe that these incidents are part of the of a broader problem in Navy culture or leadership? You know, pretty. I mean, I don't know that you ever get anybody to agree to that extent on anything. And then next to that is, do you believe that there is a direct connection between the incidents? And then you see a, a much different pie chart. So I, I don't dis, I don't disagree with that. Let me get to the next question. Single biggest point the paper makes is, um, uh, let's see, Jeff, you got to unmute yourself. You got to unmute yourself. We were getting feedback from you, so I muted you. So if you would unmute yourself, uh, single biggest. Single biggest point that you saw, Jeff? Well, I mean, uh, I already—I think I already said it. You know, the point of it is distraction, and uh, and I disagree about the idea that uh, you need more data in this. I mean, when we did the uh, special force MAGTAF about women in the infantry and women in combat arms, you had all kind of data, hard data proven. It just blew it off. So you know, and 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 why? Because uh, you know the. That's the way the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the National Command Authority wanted to go, Secretary of the Navy. So they just did it. And so I think if you make a stink, like what you were saying, Mac, and, you know, the, you know, the individual accounts and everything, I think it will make a um, – it could make a difference. All right. To me, single, single, biggest, <laughs> single biggest point in the paper. Uh, this, the single biggest point was the underinvestment in surface warfare officer training. The, the fact that they eliminated the surface warfare officer course and gave them 30 CDs and told them to learn it on their own uh, out, out in a fleet is so ridiculous that it's not even funny. And as a way of comparison, because I, I, I want to go towards a solution type of thing. The only service that sent officers into an MOS without any additional training was the Marine Corps back in the before they started the infantry officer course. Then we start the infantry officer course taking a very unglamorous MOS military occupational specialty and making that thing into a motivational school that was so good. The SEALs wanted to get in. Other countries wanted to get in. We turned that thing into a motivation incubator, right? And what were we trying to teach? It wasn't necessarily all the technical information. It was basically leadership and how to transmit orders through leadership. Now, Navy surface warfare officers, they've got a little ship that you would think would be the tightest little damn community of guys there ever would be because they depend on each other to survive, even in peacetime, just doing regular stuff like trying to transit through stores and whatnot. It seems to me that it would be so easy to have a tight destroyer ship. How could you not have a tight crew? There's only like 300 of them and you're a, 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 a 05, but they have no, no, zero leadership training or development, even when they had the surface warfare officers course, because I used to draw blood from those guys. I would Every time they showed up, uh, I'd have to go over and draw blood because I was a lab tech at Newport. And that was an unmotivated, dorky, skinny, kind of geeky looking collection of people and they had back then Marines up there 
but I think that was for OCS only. They had gummies and and uh, E7Z8s up there working those people. Um, but the Surface Warfare Officers course, it should be an I. It should be based off of an IOC model, focusing more on people or as much on people as on the instruments and technology they're trying to learn. But the but not training them at all is a, is is criminal in my opinion. Well, um, single biggest point the paper makes. Yeah, um, the the paper, you know, is basically saying there's a leadership warfighting culture issue. Um, yeah, that's what they're trying to make. And uh, you know, again, I'm going to go back and beat the dead horse a little bit. Um, The discussion below is intended to inform Congress of the findings of these interviews with an emphasis on subjects, including funding, maintenance planning, administrative management, and operational employment. For those reasons and those reasons only, if you think that this paper is going to do what you said it's going to do, you just can't have a collection of anecdotes and interviews. So that's my only point, that if, if you're writing the paper, and you put up front what the paper is supposed to be about. That's why you got to have data. Whether that's going to work or not, I have no idea. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with Jeff on that. But you can't tell me that you want to you want to inform Congress on things about funding, and then do it, just do it with stories. That that is never going to. That's an argument that you just can't make. So can, can I come in? Can I pile in on Will and and support him? Anytime. You know that that com- that uh, the congressman, congresswoman, excuse me, from down in Norfolk. What's her? Laura. 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 What, Laura. Laura. Right. Laura. The questions she was asking about specific maintenance cycle of nuclear reactor propulsed ships. That kind of data in the report, if you showed what you're paying the Navy to do, because those maintenance cycles are funded by Congress. They're supposed to be 36 months, then they go to 24 months, now they're down to 18 months. If you showed exactly what they're doing with the money they were given or not doing with the money they're given, I think I think I would I would say that that would add more to the to report. I'm I, I'm afraid that when Will says it's going to be political now, this is just going to be a political document. I I think he's right. The press ain't going to give a shit about this. Maybe times, who cares? There's only like you know a couple thousand people read that trash. So, so yeah, I, I think that is that is a deficiency. I have to I have to agree with that one point. I thought Congress that other article Mac you sent us by uh, Congress Congresswoman Loria, and she goes into the, the history of the Goldwater Nichols Act. That was I think there's um, there's applications there that kind of like also you know contribute to some of the disasters we had recently. She talks about the way Goldwater Nichols the impact it had on officers. In all the services, was that uh, people were rushing from uh, from jobs within their billets, you know, as fast as just to get a check in the box, and then in order to get the joint checks and the other checks you needed, in order to, we had all these extra field grade officers that uh, we didn't used to have before, in order to so we'd be more, you know, because the disaster that happened in Grenada and the disaster that happened at uh, you know at uh, Desert Eagle and stuff like that, which really is just a way of twisting history. And then saying, well, because of Goldwater Nichols, we did so good in Desert Storm. I mean, it's an asinine, you know, uh, thing. But she does a good job of putting all that out. 
Yeah, and you know, interestingly, I don't know when the uh, the surface warfare officer basic course started, but it used to be that all the officers in the Navy came from the Naval Academy, and they went straight from the Naval Academy to ships, and they were competent ship drivers when they left the Naval Academy. It was much more of a technical school. And then after two or three years on a ship, some of them went to be submariners and some of them went to be aviators and et cetera. So uh, at some point they needed to start the surface warfare officer basic course, likely because the Naval Academy curriculum got more academic. Uh, and so they were missing some of that and the Navy officer pipeline got more diverse, i.e. ROTC, OCS, yada, yada, yada. So they didn't have people that had had four years of ship handling at the Naval Academy. Uh, and, and so here's another anecdote to pile on. You know, when I went to the Naval Academy in the early 80s, to be a surface warfare officer meant that you weren't smart enough to be a nuke, your eyes weren't good enough to fly, weren't smart enough to be an, uh, an NFO because those billets would go out quick and you didn't want to get dirty and be a Marine. So you went to be a swoop. Nobody at the top of the class jumped up and down and say, I want to be a straight surface warfare officer, non-nuke. You know, it was the leftover. And I'll tell you something else. We had a bunch of people that became Marines in my class because they could not imagine being a surface warfare officer. So they'd rather be a Marine supply officer or something like that. So uh, the best and the brightest in the Navy did not filter into the surface warfare, straight surface warfare community. Uh, and I don't, there used to be a lot more surface nuke officers because we had nuclear cruisers. I don't know. I, I think there's probably less of that now. Um, yeah, so it's the it's the bottom of the Navy officer barrel, and then us, all of us know the bottom of that barrel is often the amphib force. So there you go. To me, you know, picking out one point, um, I don't. To me, there's this kind of um, coalescing of the leadership thing. Through the micromanagement and the one mistake um, and all of that, you know, I I talk about high-end conformists in positions of general officers and flag officers. And it's, it's you know, they're completely risk-averse. And so you, to me, when you read the report, you see a number of, 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 of points they make in the report, um, how that path gets created, is that you, you can't survive – a mistake, and I'm not talking about a mortal sin. I'm talking about a venial sin, you know. And and they talk about the guys who led the United States in World War II. None of them would have got to that position were they naval officers today. So I think when you you look at that, and you, then you see ultimately who's leading the Navy. And I talk about you know when Admiral Gilday was you know taking the task um, a few weeks ago. You know, for the the woke for the woke Navy, and I can't remember the guy's book who, who's included on that list. To me, what you the example that you would hope he would set for the nation is this: Hey, 
we're going to have a broad-based discussion. Also on that list, I put Shelby Steele's book. I put this. I put this. So, so what we're hoping to teach is critical thinking, right? And and this is just being applied in another instance for naval officers. And this is the way we're going to do this discussion. And so people would look at that and go, "Wow, you know, that sounds reasonable to me. It sounds smart." You know, but but that's not what we get. And when you look at the way single mistake creates the, the ability to micromanage and see because we can, and then ultimately where it's headed. So in a conflict with China, are you going to be able to micromanage your, your captains, you know, your ship captains? Answer, no, you're not. They're going to have to operate, you know, as General Zinni used to talk about, I am someplace doing something, right, and I can't talk to you. Do I know what's in your head? Do I know what I'm supposed to do? And and so we grow up in this system where, and the paper makes the point, you're not the ship's captain. You're just the department head of that ship with everybody watching you the whole time. And you grow up, you know, knowing that you can't, your career can't stand a mistake. And again, ultimately what get, that gets you is high-end conformists people who can carry out orders who are and who are risk averse because any, anybody who would assume risk mostly has been weeded out by the time they get to that rank and so to me the kind of convergence of some of those small points into the the leadership impact on the navy you know and and to me that's i thought that was this kind of single biggest point for me yeah it, interesting though you think about it you know, there's there's famous pictures of people in the White House Situation Room watching the, the Bin Laden raid. Um, we got 10,000 mile screwdrivers now. And uh, this is not just an issue in the Navy. And how does a national command authority, um, knowing that they can look in, decide not to look in because once you start looking in you're going to start fucking with it and uh you know throughout time as as much as commanders could look in they tried to grab the stick you know fly the plane or drive the ship or do whatever they wanted to be able to do and you know it happens in the marine corps as well and uh but this is a bigger broader issue uh than just the navy um well let me tell you and let me and let me pile on to that as you know i was a professional combat operations center officer and our ability to uh monitor merc chat right during the battle of fallujah during fallujah operations subsequent to that in the Helmand province right your people are sitting in higher headquarters and you can see them come into the rooms right you see that you know, the division operations officer now appears in, you know, you know, first L.A.R. battalions, right? You know, TAC-1 chat room. Yeah, I, I think I was very lucky to be, you know, in, in the Wild West phase of Iraq. We didn't even have Blue Force track. Um, I, I can't imagine trying to command in that sort of environment. Um, well, let me tell you, the, 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 so the good leaders, right, and all of a sudden they chime in on that net. 
And so, to me, the good leaders, the commanding officer picks up the phone and calls that guy and say, hey, look, you can be a voyeur. They've got a commanding officer, right? They know what's going on down there. They don't need you and your 8,000-mile screwdriver. Because if you don't accept that, then you go down this path that we all know that leads to to really bad stuff. And the Navy, right, Um, so I think it takes quality, educated, right, in the art of what it is to be a warfighter, knowing that they've got to do it out there. You're not going to, you know, look, you're going to have to go to a meeting in seven minutes, and you're not going to be able to babysit them anymore. Then what? So, So look, watch, right? But never, ever, ever inject yourself into that, and and that's that's hard for a lot of people, right? It's hard for a lot of people, but they've got a commanding officer, they've got an operations officer, they probably know things that are going on that you don't know, and that's why a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense to you, and so always assume that and never interject yourself like that. But as Will said, I mean, people used to do it, and they would get. I mean, when I was there, they would get. <laughs> we would ban them from the room. Because we control the room. Yeah, ban that guy. So I, it is hard, and I think it's natural. And the Navy has not had the benefit of being at war like the Marine Corps and the Army, you know, Naval Aviation and Air Force has, right? They've, they've supported those operations. They've been tangentially involved in it. So they haven't learned, I think, a lot of those hard lessons. And that micromanagement, can you imagine if you, if you could look at everything on a ship as the Commodore, you know, you can see how it happens. So interesting. You, you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back, uh, 1988 in the Philippines, we got, we got sent up to the, uh, the, the, the Naval, the Naval ammunition storage, one of those threat con Delta things, you know, so we issued out ammo. We've been out ambushed formations for a couple of days coming back down to the, to the dock. We have to turn in the ammo. We got the Marines all lined up. We're, we're recovering the ammo and there's a destroyer, parked next to our ship and the entire ship's crew is looking at us like we're freaky aliens because they've never seen small arms before and i'm i'm thinking about that because the navy did do some anti-piracy work and i saw a tv show on the armed forces network when i was in afghanistan one night i forget when it was 10 years ago where they're following this navy cruiser on anti-piracy patrols and the bullshit they went through to arm the sailors it used to be just give the sailors a rifle. They knew what to do. They were expected to fight. But they made a big deal about making these highly trained guys who ended up not able to do shit. At the end of the show, the Navy ship captain runs donuts around the mothership of the pirates because he's got no legal ability to interfere with them and basically causes them to, to take on water and, and stall stall so they can issue them life life jackets and food and shit and, and give them a tow back to the shore. That's but they should have been shooting them. You know what I mean? They they should have been shooting them. They're fucking pirates. There used to be the Navy had this thing about piracy. But we don't even do that anymore. And I say that a Navy ship crew should have small arms weapons familiarization and training. That they should have some expectation of going into harm's way, even if it's up against some shitty old Somali pirates, you know. But they don't. They they bend over backwards to make sure that they observe the rule of law even with friggin' pirates, and it's it's absurd because well, I watched and, the Russian and, and me, show in Afghanistan because it's Afghan Russian TV, and they they showed them doing their anti-piracy patrols, and they found one of these motherships. They loaded it with with all kinds of ammunition, put all the wounded Somalis they shot on board, and backed off while it blew up. 
And they started laughing. And I thought, well, that's a pretty effective anti-piracy technique. I wonder if we would ever do that. We used to, but we don't anymore. I'm not so sure it's it's great that we do. Most people would probably think it is. I don't. Well, that, again, because it leaves the Navy with with just nothing to hang their hat on as an identity. A hard sailor used to be something. Freaking Marines were afraid of them when they were young. Back in the 40s and 50s, they were hard. Now, now they're just geeks who, who obsess over things like nine millimeter small arm ammunition and whatnot. It's it's disgusting. Well, and you see the manifestation is you have a um, you have an Iranian, you know, Republican guards, you know, one of those speedboats, right, with right. a 12.7 on the bow. You have them right driving an attack profile towards your ship. And you won't even shoot to defend yourself, right? I mean, so what's it yeah, going to take? Is it going to is it going to take that them shooting twelve point seven into your ship, killing sailors, and then you're going to defend yourself? So it's almost like you know. So you see how this thing gets manifested, right? We're not a warrior culture, right? We're the navy, right? We can't, I can't make a mistake because it will end my career. I can't shoot a warning shot when somebody is clearly, clearly. Driving a boat that's in an, an attack profile with somebody manning a 12.7 on the bow, I don't shoot to defend myself. I mean, so so you can see how the, how how you can see this culture in motion, and that and again we and as as you guys have I think every one of you have said we've talked about this for years, and and here's to me what's illustrated. Don't kid yourself. The Marine Corps and the Army and the Air Force are not far behind the Navy. Right, we, uh, you're right. You're right. Right, the investigation into the AV incident, the midair collision, right between the F-18 and the KC-130, right, another Amtrak going down off the East Coast. It is all the same kind of shit. It's a lack of discipline. It's it's a lack of attention to war fighting. It's a competition with all these other requirements, right? But but you see this in the Navy where you where you watch these videos that get posted on the internet of this. Of this boat coming out a navy navy destroyer, right in an attack profile, and they don't shoot. And these guys are cutting donuts and and, and maneuvering around the ship. So okay, so here's the question: When will you shoot? After you get shot at? That's ridiculous. That's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. And that's I mean, to me, you, know, you see yeah. the manifestation. You of know, it I there. agree with I agree with what you that that phrase you use. I like it. Uh, High performing conformists. You know. Or high-end conform, you know, the that's a good... Um, high-functioning conformist. High-functioning conformist, that's a good... And I think, though, um, there's no example of a large organization, certainly not in the U.S. government, where that isn't the case. Where everybody who runs those things, you know, tries to, to uh, avoid failure. And how do you avoid... Fa- what's the easiest way to avoid failure? What's the most foolproof way? You don't, you don't do much. You certainly don't do the job you're there for. So consequently, you get a bunch of these guys who, and we have admirals and generals and and, uh, and so forth, who, and, you know, the heads of the FBI and other, you know, large organizations that they just try to avoid uh, failure. And, the, and they do that by not doing the job, not accomplishing their mission. Ba- basically, they're not much different than the guy who runs the DMV. <laughs> Reminds me of some other point, another story of yours, Mac, and that has to do with opponent selection. What kind of opponent would you select if you wanted to get into a little bit of a shootout on the high seas these days? I don't think yeah. it'd be the Russians. Don't think it'd no. be the Russians. 
Yeah. No, because because they shoot back, right? It's, oh, they'll, they'll shoot first, which um, is what I do. I mean, that's sort of like the the name of the game, right? Get that first shot. Well, again, I mean, all, but I mean the you know when you're at sea, and and again, I was part of ship's company, and uh, I mean the rules are pretty clear in terms of your right of self defense. Absolutely, it's not only your right; it's your moral obligation to to defend, right? And as a captain of a warship, the Marines and sailors that that have been placed under your command. Right, so if, if they if they want to come fuck with you when they break these very you know prescribed rules of engagement, it's clear. Shoot, fire, right? And the first shot, and 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 in 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 a and again, when you're not at war, the first shots are across, again that whole phrase, a shot across his bow, right? That's where that comes from, right? That's, exactly That's a warning shot. Fucking stop, or we're gonna blow your ass out of the water. But again, you see this shit, and you see the culture. Right, that is so war fighting aver- averse. Um, it's it's amazing. Let me let me before we, we di- digress. Right, um, third time around, something in the paper that surprised you or that you didn't expect to see, Jeff. Nothing, no. Okay, Tim. Anything in the paper uh, that surprised I, you? I, I never thought about the Navy surface fleet becoming a land attack community, but apparently. That's been their mission for 20 years, and that's what they've been focused on. And uh, um, it never occurred to me that the Navy surface fleet would consider that to be a primary job, but it is. Got it. All right. Will, anything in the report surprise you? I had no idea that they tried to teach the surface warfare officer course via CD. No shit. It's just laughable. It's absolutely laughable. That's Um, stupid. And I don't want to be a zero defect guy, but the person that came up with that idea should be fired. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised by the 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 first fig. I was surprised by figure one. I don't know too many questions that you could ask in a group of military guys where you would get ninety four percent of people saying the same thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in, and I, I'll I will support you on that one. Yeah, that also was a surprise. Yeah, that is shocking. There you go. Just goes to show you, the sun shines on a dog's ass every once in a while. <laughs> the um, no, I mean, so and the, and the question, the question is this: um, concern in the Navy is so high that when asked whether incidents such as the two destroyer collisions in the Pacific, the surrender of the small craft to the IRGC in the Arabian Gulf, the burning of the Bon Armour Shard, now again. The running aground of the Antietam in Tokyo Bay, right? The collision of a Korean fishing vessel with the USS, I can't remember the name, Bunker Hill or something like that, Lake Champlain, at noon off the coast of Korea, right? I mean, again, Timmy's laughing, right? At noon, it hits some broadside, right? So, so there's more here. Right, that isn't listed, and the Bonhomme yeah. Shard, right? We're part of a broader cultural and leadership problem in the U.S. Navy. Ninety-four percent responded, yes. I mean, that's that's um, like to me that was holy shit, like <laughs> holy shit. You know what's so weird is for most of human history, it was the Navy officers who were the professional meritocratic organization 
where land army officers bought their commissions and didn't give a shit about the troops and basically campaigned uh, with, you know, service valets and wine and shit. While the Navy was deadly serious because 24-7, that Navy captain has the lives of his crew in his hand. His competence and his ability to do his job meant life or death for the entire crew. And how the hell can you develop an organization of nerds when you had such a manly ass mission in the first place, how could you not have a destroyer crew that's tight? I, I, it does it. I mean, it, it begs. It, I, I can't imagine it. But nobody at the Navy is teaching leadership. Well, let me time. tell you. I went to do my decision making class with him. Um, I, I don't know if you know Steve Zotti, but Steve Zotti was. Oh yeah, in, I know Steve. In my basic school class, but anyway, he was. Uh, he was running. What are they called? That the the group of midshipmen that are the bulldog, the bulldogs. Is yeah. that what do they call yeah. that? Will that society? They didn't have. That. They didn't have it. So there's a Semper Fi society there, which was probably what you're talking yeah, about. I think that's what I'm talking about. So so we're driving up there, um, and Steve invited you know me to to do that class, and as we get near Annapolis, Major Allen at the time. His mood visibly changes, and I thought I had said something, right? Huh. And um, easy, Will. Easy. Um, and so I said, did I say something that offended you? And he said, no. He said, um, this coming back here really bothers me. And I said, Why? And he said, this, this place has an incredible history, and it's become, and this is now, you know, 1990, 1991 time frame. It's becoming a liberal, art, liberal arts university that won't teach leadership. He said, and it, it, he said, it just bothers me because it has the opportunity to do such great things with the human capital. You know, look what it did for Will. Fucking Rube from upstate. I'm with these guys, you know, on Tuesday. Some I know very well. All of them I've known for more than 30 years. And they're all successful people. Very much uh, in spite of the place. So when I go back there now, I go back there to see my the friends of my class, and it's it's interesting what you know we're we're having a our class is now thirty five years on, so they're trying to have a campaign to get donate money. I'm like, I can't do it, I can't do it. The, the The place it it makes me slightly sick to my stomach. Mm. And I was there last summer, and uh, and I try not to be, you know, the old goat, All right. uh, the old grad, um, but I'm just sort of watching. And uh, and look, we were as fucked up as midshipmen as anybody else, but goddamn, we weren't that fucked up. Um, and it's it's a function of the leadership and the expectation. Uh, Yeah, it, it's sort of hard to explain, but it and and again, the human capital there is unbelievable. Right. The the midshipmen, uh, but not across the board, but in certain areas of it, are like 
hey, this guy that we buried on Tuesday, I figured out when I was 19 or 20 years old that I should be more like him. You know, there were people there like that. Um, no, th- think about it, right? Um, you have the Ernest Evans of the of the United States Navy. You have the James Stockdales of the United States Navy. You have these kind of legendary, you know, leaders in the United States Navy. And that's and and Will sentiment was, you know, Major Allen sentiment as we drove there. And then he ultimately went back, right, as the Commandant of Midshipmen. What, what, yeah, yeah, right. He's the Commandant of Midshipmen. So that's the the superintendent is a three star is like the president of the college and the commandant of midshipmen is typically a 06 slash one star is like the dean of students sort of. And, uh, and so, um, but anyway, it, it was very interesting. So, um, but again, you're talking about the culture. Um, and again, I, I'd be curious. Um, do you see now the Bon Armour Shard investigation going to come out? I would I, not knowing I would, I would endeavor to say that is going to be awful. You know, you haven't seen anything else written on, on what caused the fire. You know, there was, uh, there was emails exchanged almost a year ago talking about, well, uh, less than a year ago talking about, um, arson, but you've seen no more. Nobody's officially been charged in that, but the investigation will come out. And I, and again, my assumption is that it'll just be, it won't be good for the Navy. Where does this go? Is Will right? Will this go nowhere? I I would, you know, in the biggest of those incidents that are talked about in that report, to me, the worst one is the one in the Gulf of the two small craft given up to the Iranians. That that shows you a culture that's just completely given up. You know, Um, how, how could you possibly do that? And then how does that, Navy lieutenant not be court-martialed. It's it's just bizarre, right? This is the fighting part of the Navy. Just surrenders and allows themselves to be propaganda tools without ever taking a shot. Um, fuck. Yeah, but what happens, what happens if, if, I mean, and to use that as an example, I mean, we're out here doing some stuff, but we don't really expect to fight. I mean, come on. I mean, if we want to, if we were expected to fight, we'd be in the Marine Corps. I mean, we're just out here, you know, in the Navy doing our thing. Fighting? Come on, Will. That's, you know, the, the, the cabbie once toward sallow young men who showed up that didn't even know what it felt like to have sweat going down the back of their backs, which is remarkable. But they take guys like that and turn them into friggin' meat eaters like Will Constantine. I mean, meat eaters, they, they, it, it, even in the eighties, the Academy was working and I got to say the product they gave us when I was in SPC, you know, working with uh, the Fox company, which was an Academy company, friggin' outstanding, goddamn outstanding. But all of it was with a caveat because all of those guys felt the same way that Will feels now, the same way that Major Allen felt back then. They became outstanding despite what they were being taught and told, despite it, not because of it. Because there were still people like Major Allen and Colonel Costantini hanging around that place. They gave him something to aspire to be. I cannot understand how the Navy surface warfare community can't look at what we did and duplicate it. They've got a inherently cool mission 
if higher headquarters stays the hell out of their wardroom and lets them go float around the damn world getting into mischief like they're supposed to. Well, I, I think I don't the answer is that every turn they get told they're not war fighters, that war fighting isn't important. And that's what that comes through in space. War fighting isn't important. These other things are right. Tend to all these other things. You can get away without being a war fighter and then you'll get promoted. And that's the culture. And again, it is the culture of high functioning conformist. And, and, and if you if you wanted to, I mean, one, one of the sections of it talked about, you know, the assumption of risk. I remember General Zinni in that PME talking about risk. You know, so if I do this, what am I going to lose? And in some way, shape, or form, teaching how to quantify risk. Am I going to lose the position? Might I lose a few people? Right? Might I lose my logistical supply line? So quantify what is the risk. Well, that's, I mean, that's all graduate-level studies, right, as a military guy. You know, they don't even, the assumption of risk, I mean, they run from it. And so, I mean, that's, and that's a cultural thing that you're bred to. You look at, you look at, you know, how, um, how, I mean, the benefit that we had being exposed to the people and that, that we got exposed to, the impact on us as, as young leaders, I mean, it, it, it transformed us as leaders, right? I mean, if you look at all the guys who were in, you know, just preceded us and followed us, you know, they're guys who became, you know, big-time leaders of the Marine Corps. You know, and, and so, but if you don't, again, if, if instead of those guys, you, you meet high-functioning conformists slash bobbleheads, yes, 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 take them off, boss, right? And that's what they know, and that's what you do, and that's what your culture is, I would say that that's what you become. Jeff, you look like you were yeah, pre- was, pregnant with thought. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the threat, the, the, the cost, the risk for a high-functioning conformist is personal personal advancement, the fear of, uh, of, uh, you know, being held responsible for something and, uh, and that will impede his, uh, you know, his, uh, his aspirations for a career, not people, not, I don't think, I mean, maybe I'm being too mean, but, uh, I don't think the people running our services now, um, really care too much individually about the welfare of the, uh, the people in the organization. Uh, well, let me, I would disagree. Here, here's and not much though. I would say they really do care, but the filter they look through is if I say this, how will it impact me? And I offer you as evidence of that when Dave Furness said, "We're not disciplined enough." The only other general officer who came out and said anything was Del Alford. Yeah. Right. And they all knew it was true. Right. They all knew it was true, and he got drugged through the streets, and none of them said shit. Why? Because including General Neller, General Neller didn't even say anything. Right, and he he knew complaining about it. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so when you listen, so when you listen to it, um, and and why didn't they say anything? Because Furness was getting the shit beat out of him, you know, and all, you know, from every from every you know rafter and pew saying that he was full of shit, except he was telling the truth. And why would, why didn't they say anything? They would, didn't say anything because of, of the way it would have impacted them personally. And to me, um, that's what this breeds. High-end conformists, right, the risk takers. Think of all the people, again, it talked about that uh, command master chief, like, hey, hey, when he comes out here, when the president comes out here, the vice president comes out here, I want you to cheer like you do at a strip club, right? 
30 years invested in a career. <laughs> See you later. We don't need you anymore. Right? As opposed to just getting yanked in, right? Hey, you know, and getting your ass chewed. Now, get the fuck out of here and don't do that anymore. I mean, we and why like, would you get your ass chewed for that too? I mean, yeah, yeah, clubs are, strip clubs are. What, what are you? Are you discriminating against people? I mean, you go to a strip club. Sex workers all time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about this. And how many people? You know, um, you know, General Neary got relieved, right? Uh, uh-huh. Let's see. Uh, was it Lieutenant Colonel Khan? Yeah, he got relieved. Yeah, Right. I mean, so you see all these things you you misspeak in public. Right. The outrage on social media. And then your higher commander says, hey, I can't I can't have this splash on me. You're fucking done. Even if you even if you're a Pashto speaker and it's 2002 and you're going to be in Afghanistan for a long time. That was fucking genius. Yeah. Pashto and Urdu. uh, Yeah, that's right. uh, Yeah. I saw guys. I I saw Khan a couple of times when I was uh, uh, a freebooter. Hey, but again, that, that's my point: is that the Marine Corps and the Army and the Air Force are not that far behind the Navy, and that's why, in my opinion, that's why you're right. That's why this discussion. And again, don't look at one investigation; put them next to each other. And what you see is a trend: is lack of lack of discipline, lack of organizational discipline that goes to leadership, that goes to accountability. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, interesting. When you when you line the toll books up with this series by Atkinson about the Army, you, you know, the takeaway from the first volume of each of those books is that we were not ready to fight World War II. We weren't ready materially. We weren't ready uh, psychologically. psychologically. Yeah. We weren't ready leadership-wise. We were not organized. And we had time. So we had depth in the country, uh, and we had enough time to be able to use our depth, our depth to get the industrial base and also to find the leaders and develop the attitude. And so this is probably typical of almost all the wars. I mean, the Civil War was the same way, uh, Spanish-American War, World War I. Um, the one difference might be that in the modern world, particularly in space and cyber, you may not have time for the depth that you hopefully have to be able to be brought to the fore. Um, you know, the, a Pearl Harbor with a pure competitor might mean your electric grid goes off for the next seven months. Yeah, like, well, and, think about it. That's a good point, Will, that you made because uh... – if, in, if when Saddam Hussein took over Kuwait in 1990, if uh, we didn't have the relationship we had with Saudi Arabia and President Bush still decided he wanted to expel him from Kuwait, we would have to do, we'd have to do an amphibious assault and we'd have to do it quick. And uh, and also and the same thing, I think the lesson for our our enemies is present the United States with a, a fait accompli. In other words, like let's just use Taiwan as an example. If we're going to do something belligerent against the United States, we got to make it so we take the thing and they don't have time to build up the goodwill and the support and the logistical support in order to do what they do best, which is disintegrate our systems. And so I think that's what you're going to see. They want, you know, uh, that well, they'll grab some key piece of terrain and then and we won't be willing to expend the blood and capital to take it back. 
it, 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 there's something else too, without even the interference of China. In, in 1989, we had to go bombing across the Pacific to make Just Cause, because Just Cause was kicking off. We were coming out of the Philippines, but there was a typhoon between us and, the, and, the, and Panama. And I remember there was a lot. I don't. I wasn't part of it, of course. I was only a first lieutenant. But they made the conscious decision that they could make it through that typhoon because they had enough experience within the ship's crews due to Vietnam, where you had to loiter off the coast and you couldn't run from typhoons. They knew that they could make it through. And we got we took a hell of a beating getting there. I mean, a hell of a beating getting through those storms. It was it was drama, but we got through it only to be written off a just cause. So we didn't do anything, which kind of pissed me off. N not the least of which was because the LST was so badly damaged it had to go back to San Diego. The LST barely made it through that thing. But we took a calculated risk for for a gain that that could have been used if they wanted to use us. I wonder if they have the knowledge and ability now within that Navy to even make an informed decision about the capability of weathering something as bad as a typhoon, because that 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 was an ass kicker. I mean, an ass kicker. No, I but mean, I, I think in the, did it safely. in the risk averse American military, I mean, yeah. they would they yeah. would they would simply they would simply not do that. And and nope. I, I want to pile on Will's point. You look at the American Civil War, right? Um, it's really not until 1863, this month in Gettysburg, that you get the first string that, other than Dan Sickles, other that's headed into Pennsylvania. You know, Reynolds, his home state. You know, um, the guys on Little Round Top. You know, it's it's their it's their home state. You know, and they're marching north. But these guys at every juncture at Gettysburg, what you see is, whether it be Hancock, whether it be Reynolds and Buford on day one, right, um, you see these guys step up and and you had the time, the industrial capacity to do that. And to Will's point with the Chinese and, to, and, and Jeff's point behind that, what they're going to do is continue to build ships to dominate the Western Pacific and make the United States quit without ever firing a shot. And, it, and and the proposition will be it's simply too expensive. We simply we're not up to the task. They're too big and we won't do it. And to me, that that's that's the Chinese. You know, we're gonna invest in our naval might. We're gonna make we're gonna give them the perception that they can't they can never win and they will cede to us not only the greater co the, the great greater eastern co-prosperity sphere isn't that what they call it the Some, japanese or words that's to that effect the Senka yeah, that's, the, that's what we got the yeah. senkaku islands Rich. right taiwan the philippines all of that will be seated and to me that's that is the smart course of action and and this this report rings the bell on that and i and i think it will also ring the same bell in the other services and the well, question, the question is, and, and I think Will said this. This bell's been ringing for a few years, though, right? We we know that we've had these discussions. I mean, I'll tell you what: sickening on top of sickening on top of sickening, or were the three different podcasts that we did about the AAB investigation. And if you want to see this shit in motion in the Marine Corps, read that investigation and listen to the, those podcasts. Right. Yeah, 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 but Mac, the only people who understand the Navy's culpability in that incident are the listeners to this podcast. If you weren't listening to us, nobody else has heard that information. Yeah, nobody that, else that knows is, that. Is, and it's into, incidentally, that investigation is done too, the Navy part, and it, they haven't released it yet. But it's this horrible 
in its own way as the BHR one, from what I hear. It should be. Yeah, you know, you know uh, this is. You're right. You're right, though, Mac, about um, about them not having a fire shot. And, and this is where, you know, this is a political document now. But but Cotton should push it. Could push it back down into the military, because the the military, you know, the watchwords nowadays that I think the chairman used and, and a bunch of the service chiefs is, you know, fight tonight. We got to be ready to fight tonight. Right. So if you're going to be ready to fight tonight, then you have to have a fighting culture. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. we we believe that even though it's anecdotal, it's it's pretty significant that we do not have a fighting culture. And you got to be you it, you can take this report and roll it up and stick it in the CNO's eye, and he'll just throw it away. Yeah, you got to somehow be able to make it where you're using his words and the Navy's words to persuade. Uh, otherwise, it just becomes partisan bullshit. And, uh, you know, that that's that's the downside of it is that. We all know it. We've all seen it. And if we fight someone where we got time to get our shit together, it really won't matter. And this will go in the history books as one more time we fucked off in the interwar period and a bunch of people paid the price of the beginning of the war. But if we fight a peer competitor, there is no day two. And I'm assuming that it's not going to be a, you know, hand us a fait accompli, but it's going to be space and cyber to start out. Yeah. That is going to cripple you if you're not ready to fight. I got a question for Will, though. That that Congresswoman Luria, am I saying that right? Luria. Naval, Luria. Naval Academy grad, right? Naval Academy grad, nuclear engineering officer, 20 years of service, gets out as a commander? Yeah, is that's that, right. That's right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I was... When, uh, you know, when do you make 06? Um, I got promoted in... I got promoted in... Uh, Oh, seven. So 22 years. Yeah, you're in zone. Like I thought we were morning. slower. I thought we were slower than you. No, no. All the services, because of all the legislation, have really come almost to the same point. Oh, no shit. Uh, now, the Air Force, for people, the hot runners, they do what they call double-double deep. They'll get deep selected twice. So you got 18-year colonels. But in the Navy, you can't make those wickets. You can't make them go faster because yeah. you got to have the time. To be now, the CEO of the ship and those things. I was wondering if she was one of those people you run into who's just a goddamn technical expert, not exactly a social animal, and doesn't accept any bullshit. Because it seems to me that's the way she comes off, at least to me. And 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 as Mac has said, as we've all said, it's it's people like her that give me hope for the future. Because she's a little bit more damn serious about this than anything I've seen uh, Congressman Crenshaw do. And I'm you know I'm of course got an affinity for Crenshaw. He's a Texan. But no, uh, yeah. well, I'll tell you what. I mean, she's the kind of person that if you're not paying attention in an argument, she'll slit your throat in front of God and everybody and throw your carcass out there. Yeah. Uh, something Will said reminded me about something that um, is that Dr. Stolpe wrote in A Bias for Action. And so I pulled it up. In Russia, the 7th Panzer Division advanced without Rommel even more effectively than they had in 1940 in France with him. 
The Russian experience tells us that the genius of the division went far beyond one man. The great advances of the 7th Panzer Division in Russia were based on self-confidence and initiative, initiative among commanders, staffs, and rank and file, right? Qualities that focus on rapid action in war. Seniors commander, senior commanders in the 7th Panzer Division allowed subordinate leaders to make mistakes. The tolerance of these leaders was never an excuse for slipshod performance. It was the calm recognition that rapid action in the face of uncertainty will result in errors, errors that can be overcome by more action. Right? German command style pivoted on taking action in war, demanded that subordinate leaders take such, such action, and accepted the mistakes that naturally occurred. And so, I, I mean, I, I, love, I love that because, you know, if you're going to fight tonight, this is the culture that you have to accept. Yeah, and, well, I mean, th- that's kind of like, you know, like, a, you know, too cute by half, man, because the Germans knew they were going to be fighting because they knew they were going to violate all the laws and they're going to invade countries and stuff. It wasn't like the war came to them and they were ready. They decided when the war was going to happen and they were ready. Whereas, you know, we, you know, ostensibly don't have that luxury of saying, okay, we're going to fight today. So the Chinese, they'll have the advantage of knowing we're attacking. Anybody who fights us has the advantage of knowing that they're going to start it. You know, rarely do we, you know, do we initiate. So then, uh, so then arguably our culture should be even more biased to action because yeah. we're going to take the first punch. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. Like Will was saying, you got to be ready to react immediately. And you got to anticipate where the thing is most likely to, to happen for sure. Where's the most danger? And you kind of went through with your risk thing, you know, from General Zinni. Where's our most, and we do it all the time, but I don't know if we even, if people above take it seriously anymore. What's the most dangerous course of action? What's the most likely course of action of the adversary? And, and to take steps accordingly. All right. All right. Um, final thoughts. Um, final thoughts on, on, on this paper. Um is it just a rock thrown into a lake? It'll make a ripple and then it'll go away. Uh, if you were a betting man, uh, does this make any does this make any difference, Jeff? Well, I think this is this is Senator Cotton is is taking upon the mantle himself of uh, you know of of fighting for traditional America across the board, and the military is a big part of it, and he's trying to stave off. You know these uh, cultural changes that are being foisted upon us by uh, you know, by the the new progressive movement, and that and this is part of that. He is across the board doing the stuff. Tim, I think you're probably going to get a a, a service warfare officer schoolhouse out out of this, but I believe that's been a long time coming because that was a recommendation from those uh, the collision incidents we've discussed a couple of years ago. Right. Um, I hope I hope. That this is does become a political document that guys like Crenshaw and Cotton use because they do have a national prominence and presence, and I do believe that their hearts in the right place. And and maybe if they come to power, we can see the Navy's attitude change. But I will restate and stick to what I've said before: it's really not going to change until they get a severe ass kicking, and it's going to happen quick. And after that, I think they'll get serious. I don't think they'll get serious before. Will, um, your thoughts, and then what are you reading? Because I know you have to go. Yeah, I, I mean, if if uh, Congress flips, I don't know who becomes the chairman of the Senate Armed Services. I don't think Cotton is senior enough. 
Um, so I just think this turns into another thing that, you know, five years from now we'll be saying, hey, remember that? Um, <laughs> only if, if you get a guy who's sitting in the most relevant committee that's willing to grind every uh, Navy, you know, three-star and up appointment through that thing. Yeah, unless he becomes Secretary of Defense in 2025. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, but even, Bless even you. With, thank you. But even, even with that, as a Secretary of Defense, while you would like to think that you would pay a lot of attention to this stuff, you know, the Navy is only uh, it's only about uh, I don't know, fifteen percent of your budget, twenty percent of your budget. You know, you got a lot of other shit to do. So, anyways, what am I reading? I'm reading the second volume of Rick Atkinson's. Trilogy about the army. So they just did uh, day of battle. You're in that. Yeah, they just did Sicily and Italy. And I mean, it's really, <laughs> really good. The thing about this guy is he doesn't love any of them and he doesn't hate any of them. He just right. tells you about them. And uh, how many stars would you give this out of five? Oh, this is a five star book. Whoa. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, this is uh, this this trilogy is a classic. You know, this is on on par with Toll, slightly below Toll. Yeah. Toll is just a little bit better. Um, but this is really great stuff. And and I don't know why I didn't read these books years ago, because they've been out for a while. Yeah. And his next series is about the American Revolution. The first one was already out. You know, we're eagerly awaiting the next one or two, whatever, because they're going to be great. But, yeah. Even if you don't care about the army, this is just a great study in organizations and and people and uh, and how fucked up things were back then. They really were. Yeah. Things were fucked up back then uh, in the army and in, in the U.S. So yeah, it's really good. All right. Well, good luck. Yeah. Thanks. I got to go get a shot. So. Well, good for you. Yeah, You're not, a hero, man. <laughs> yeah, not that. Not the. I gotta. I'm old, so I'm getting a shingles. Actually. Oh, geez. Oh, that's a good call, Christ. brother. That's a yeah. good call. I had one. They just called me today and said, "Hey, you're overdue for your second one." Oh, I get it. You don't want shingles, man. No, I'm on the way. So, anyways, see you guys. All right, see you. Well. See you. Cheers. Tim, what are you reading? Well, I said last week that I'd gone back and read, uh, was reading John Keegan's Face of Battle. And in that book, it was really fun. In that book, he mentions a conundrum he didn't think we would ever know, which is what motivated the British foot soldier during the Napoleonic Wars, given the, the fact that the officers evidently cared nothing about him by their writings and whatnot. And, and he thought, he said when he wrote that book in the 1970s, that we'll never know. But now we do know. And I found a book that answers that question. It's called All for the King's Shillings, The British Soldier Under Wellington, 1808 to 1814 by a guy named Edward J. Cross. Cross, excuse me, C-O-S-S. And this damn thing is fascinating. And I'll cut to the chase. The cohesion, the combat cohesion that the Brits were able to generate was based out of the six-man mess unit and the norms and behaviors and everything that influenced the soldiers' participation in battle was embedded in that unit and being true to that unit. Because, uh, again, the officers 
had very little to do with the men. They didn't even like look after their feeding or whatnot. And that was why the British soldier got such a bad reputation was because he stole everything he could get his hands on because they were never properly fed. And it's uh, the, the this book goes to the caloric content of what was provided to him. To it's it's very pedantic to be honest, but it's goddamn interesting because it says what we've been trying to say about the Navy all along. It's all about the dynamics of people leadership and expectations of that small group that you're that uh, that you're a part of particularly in the military and you would think in a ship's crew too but apparently not but it's a it's it's damn damn interesting and to answer a question that keegan put out there uh, 30 or 40 years ago I, you know you can't do that every day so i was uh, i was all pleased with myself you sound like you're pleased with yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Answering questions from way back when. You should read Keegan again. Some of his uh, assumptions about what future warfare is going to look like. He was dead wrong, dead right on some, dead wrong on others. It's, it was a damn pleasure to read that book again. It really was. Wow. Yeah. T- Tim Lynch, moderately fired up today. <laughs> there you go. And then we'll compare and contrast that with Jeff Kenny. Yes. As I said, and when I was in my little room and you guys saw the books I had been donated to me by some of you, uh, I'm rereading, unfortunately, a three-volume biography of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I'm on the, the Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, the first one, which is a great book. And, uh, and, he, and, and he's one of my, if not my favorite, uh, is uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And... Um, it's uh, it goes in a lot of detail about the guy, and, and uh, you know, the beginning part of it kind of like tries to get you interested. So it tells a lot of anecdotes about him as president and him as a young man and everything before it gets into just the sheer biography of it. But it's very interesting. The guy's mom and and wife died the same day, and uh, you know, he when he was very young, you know, his first wife and uh, and him dealing with that and his book. He wrote like over twenty one books, and unlike our latest. He was the first, quote, progressive, even though progressive then meant a lot of different things than it means now. And uh, he wrote 21 books, none of them about himself, whereas our latest progressive president, if you don't count this one we got now, President Obama has written, I think, four books totally about himself. And he just can't say enough about himself. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt wrote 21 things on everything from ornithology to the War of 1812 to the... You know, the, uh, the the exploration and uh, settling of the West by you know European Americans and so forth. So uh, it's just a great thing, and uh, you know, he's like, uh, in my opinion, Theodore Roosevelt's like the last great man in America, and like Winston Churchill's the last great Brit. What about what about Will? You don't think Will's a great American? I think he's real good. <laughs> <laughs> he's better than me. Hey, man, Theodore Roosevelt had uh, the chief of the Comanches, Quanah Parker, march in his inaugural parade. Quanah Parker must have hey, killed you, hundreds of, of, when you hundreds read, of army people. Would you read Morris's biography of Roosevelt, the first right installment? I mean, and then he spun the toilet paper. You, right? No, you, you, no, 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 but I'm saying that you, I mean, he drills into Roosevelt, right? He drills into Roosevelt. And his life, 
and the death of his wife, the way his mother, you know, his mother's influence on him, you know, being a sick child and the impact that has on him his entire life. Him sprinting, he became the New York City Police Commissioner. He his yeah. first day at work, right? There's like 87 steps that go up to the to to the entrance. He's in a tuxedo with a top hat. And he and he sprints up the 87 steps, right? I mean, he's doing shit that nobody that nobody yeah. did, right? When he was like well, Eight, when he was like yeah. seventeen, he writes a book on ornithology, or like yeah. the, you know about the you know the the birds, the ornithological aspect of the birds of you know northern Long Island yeah. Oyster Bay. I mean, like, are you yeah, shitting he, me? Yeah, and he was a great dad too. I mean, he's the type of dad you know that uh, his kids had fun, you know, because oh, he's crazy. He's crazy as yeah. hell, right? Yeah, he's shooting Let's go guns. Trees down. Let's go hunting. <laughs> Let's go. You know, hold on. Hey, I'm about. To, I'm about to wrestle. Guy. I'm about to wrestle Taft in, 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 in the in the Lincoln bedroom, right? And he says, "Hey, you ever know how to you ever know how to stab a wolf? I'll show you on this horse." And he, I won't really stab it though. And he gets this horse. This is when he's president. He gets a horse. It's somewhere down in D.C. He gets a horse in a headlock. He's got like a comb or a pen. He goes, and you get it, and you insert it here. And that's how you kill a wolf with a, with a knife. I learned it from some guy, from one of the guys who later became a rough rider. But, but but when when he first went out west, it was for his health, right? He was a rather no, sickly no, child. no. He's no, he he's running. He lost his wife and, yeah, he could. If, uh, if he would have uh, had, got if, that story wrong if I'd have been doing post traumatic winning, I could have helped his ass out. He would have had to go to North Dakota in his, and he shows up in North Dakota, right? Yeah, with yes, with this buckskin fringe shit, and so you have the guys who live out there. They're like. What the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? He knocks some guy out for fucking with him, you know? Yeah, um, but he wins them all over, and they form the nucleus of what ultimately is the Rough Riders. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I was going at. His nickname was, because he'd be, they're like trying to wrestle, they're trying to get the cattle, you know, uh, herded up, and he's like, and his way of saying, get up there, hurry up. His way of saying that is, hasten forward quickly there. <laughs> he's like, what the fuck is this guy? Yeah, but 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 he but he shows up an Eastern dandy and wins them over. Oh, yeah. completely, completely. How about when he ran down the guys who wrestled this cow? He catches them <laughs> at gunpoint. He has them in a canoe. By the time they get down the Missouri River, we can deliver them to the law. He actually liked them. They're quite personal <laughs> <personable. laughs> men, and in some ways more admirable than people who are like in, you know in the who ran the town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no. Let me tell you, but uh, you know, you're reading it, and um, and you have all that flavor of Roosevelt dripping out, and then you see the things that he does. Right? I mean, you know, it, 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 and I think the opening part of Morris's book is Roosevelt on the train from Albany yeah. to D.C., and he's going through right uh, the neighborhoods where the train tracks are, through Philadelphia, right, down front, down through New York City and whatnot. And he, he's seeing this tempest of the American immigrant, right, as the, the American Industrial Revolution takes the country, and this fissure that's opening that is going down the same path that Europe has gone down, where you have communists and fascists, and because of because of the disparity in wealth, and you know, and, and then he goes on to create the eight-hour workday, you know, the national park system, and all the different things that are decades right over the horizon. And he's yeah. he's just incredible. He's just incredible. One of you know, again, I I think you know, obviously Washington. Well, he hired he hired the first Italian American detective 
Joe Petrosino, and uh, he was a police commissioner. And then when this guy got murdered by the mafia in, in uh, 1909, Roosevelt uh, encouraged – that guy had a quarter of a million people at his funeral in Manhattan. Can you imagine that? No. And, uh, yeah, you know, he was, uh, he was very – he's the first guy he had. He had uh, Booker T. Washington come to the White House. He, had, he inter- opened up the White House to, uh, to black people. And, of course, Woodrow Wilson, the great fucking Democrat son of a bitch, um, he closed it all up again. Yeah. No, but if, I'll tell you what. It, it, and, and when you read about Roosevelt, it, it's entertaining reading because you, he does crazy shit on a regular basis, right, on a regular basis. And, it's, it's, uh, and when you delve into his life, uh, he's just a fascinating, fascinating guy. And, and in fact, um, you know, I framed here in now my studio is his great quote about, you know, the man in the arena. Yeah. The and, man in the uh, arena. And, That's a and, quote yeah. Now, if you want to, if you want somebody to inspire you, if you want a life that, that walked down its own path, um, then if you want to know where the teddy bear came from, exactly. Yeah. He thought that was, he thought it was a, it was in gross impertinence to call him Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And you read. Jason the, quickly there. I'll punch you out. <laughs> you read the things that he says, but ultimately he always wins his detractors over, right? Yeah. He always does. I mean, and he's just. But but the way he uses the English language, uh, it's just it's it's hilarious. Yeah. It's well, hilarious. Both Mark Twain. Mark Twain and Rudyard Kipling thought he was insane. <laughs> He's insane, but I like him. Like, I like him. I like him. I've got to read that. I've got to read that trilogy. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's, uh, yeah, you're going to learn a lot about Roosevelt. Uh, cool. Is that, it's, it's Morris's trilogy, right, Jeff? Yeah, Edmund Morris. Yeah, Edmund Morris. He also yeah. wrote a book about Reagan too. He wrote the Reagan. Yeah, book. I read that one. Right. Right. All right. Uh, I will let you go uh, resume your lives. I appreciate uh, I pre- and, 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 and I, I would just end with this. The, the, I think the importance, you know, if you're a Marine and you listen to this program, the Marine Corps is pointed down the same road that the Navy's further down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And, 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 and so I think everybody needs to look inward and saying, asking ourselves, are we creating a culture that promotes high-end conformism, risk aversion, not doing the right thing, not speaking out and saying what you know to be true because it will impact my career adversely. And I will tell you that, if, if you wave off of telling the truth, then you're a piece of shit, okay? Mm-hmm. There's people's lives that depend on you, and you've got to tell the truth no matter what. And I, But I think the place to start is stop this, you know, you got to quit because you said clap like you're at a strip joint, right? Yeah. Stop that oh, right they, now. Have oh, some the, guts. The way, that they, the, the way that General Neary got relieved just fought, chapes my ass to, to, to no end. It's the, it's the inmates running the asylum when that kind of crap gets gets. Well, no, no, again, it's it's, it's, Brady, Brady it, it's yeah, exactly. It's their commanding officers who, who, who make this evaluation. If I call him and chew his ass – and keep him in command, somebody's going to get on Twitter or Facebook and air my shit out, and I can't mm-hmm. have that. He's got to go. I'm sorry. It's like, you know, General Marshall gave guys chances. Like he said, I'm going to give Terry Allen another chance because he's got a lot of value as a combat commander. 
I'm going to give George Patton another chance. Right. And he wasn't worried about somebody saying, you know, maybe we should fire General Marshall if he's doing it. He's like, fuck you. You want to fire me? Go the fuck ahead and see who, who's going to win this thing for you. You know, the guy, the lack of fear and the, the ability to, although he wouldn't use the word fuck you probably, to be able to, you know, to uh, stand up for themselves is something that for some reason these guys think that uh, isn't in the uh, isn't in the quiver anymore, you know? Well, again, by the guys who do, they've all been culled from the herd. Yeah. And so at that level, you know, to, to have somebody to say, you know. It's like hey, General, General Newbold, General Shinseki. You know, Rumsfeld fucking axed them. And that and General Mattis, he got not only did he get fired by President Trump, he got fired by, by Obama. He got fired by both of them, <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, what the fuck? You know, and so people look at that and go, well, how to not get fired? Don't be like General Mattis. Yeah, don't say what you believe. Don't tell the truth. Don't, don't tell the truth. There's, we, there's some up and comers still in the race, boys. We, we've got. Uh, we've got I know, some but still Timmy, in the race. they will we, be. We got, they will. Hope there's more than just a few. That's they will all. be and eliminated just, unless something's done, and 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 you get protected when you say no. Look, I counseled him, right? You know, you know, he's he got a non-punitive letter of caution for me about his language. Blah 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 blah. End of story. And then that guy's boss says, you know what? I completely support it. That that mistake he made does not imbalance 30 years of, of outstanding service to the United States Navy. Right? <laughs> you need, and I you remember need... getting a non-punitive letter for the massacre of the Loblolly Pines at Range yes, 7. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Major Allen looked at I, looked, I was devastated. Major Allen goes, oh, you're a piece of shit if you come up 20 years in Marine Corps don't have a damn non-punitive letter. Everybody that's worth a damn has one of these, and I felt better about it. Well, but, no, uh, but again, that's... But I don't think we, that's the case anymore. We've got to get back to that culture that, look, you, yeah. can't, you can make a, you know, a venial sin. Mortal sins will, will get you terminated. We got, everybody sure. understands that. But a venial sure. sin, you misspeak, something like that, come on, man. Come on, man. I mean, yeah, but now it's like, if you say something that's a little bit salty, like that Sergeant Major you're talking about, Mac, you know, you're done, you're over with for that? Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah. All right, boys. I will uh, We'll talk next week. I appreciate the, uh, it, it, again, an interesting discussion in terms of, and, and General Smith said it in that hearing, fight tonight, right? How many times do you say it in, in those budget hearings, fight tonight? Um, so Jesus Christ, I, that's that's irritating to hear. That's just irritating. Well, no, and and if that's your if if it's great power competition and you have to be in a position to fight tonight, then you need to reverse engineer from the point of contact. Know that you'll be electronically isolated for at least stretches. And how do you need to train your captains of ships and their crews to be able to fight? And it is certainly it's certainly not the way we're training now. Certainly not. The red cell. Now. Red cell takes on huge importance. Right. Hey, man, I tell you what, they get those little damn ships in Marine Corps talking about building. It's going to be all you can do to get those son of a bitches across the Pacific. I've been in those storms, man. Holy shit. Could you imagine hitting a, hitting a typhoon with one of those little damn things? Smaller than an LCI? Oh, God. That's got it. Oh, no. They got issues, man. No, we'll have to watch the weather and sneak them across at some point. So, anyway. Yeah, All right, guys. Sure. Have a good, hey, have a good week. Thanks, right. See you guys. You bet. Those are the Mensa brothers here on a uh, on Thursday.
Um, interesting discussion. So again, we'll see if it goes anywhere. Um, it, it, it will get another life though when the Bonarm Richard Richard, uh, the Bonarm Richard investigation uh, sees the light of day. Um, but again, if it's not funded, and if, if the leadership of the Navy, and again, as Tim said, I think they've already taken steps to remedy uh, their surface warfare officer problem, school problem, and that's that would be for you know initial um, uh, training of their junior officers. But the ten thousand foot screwdriver is a problem. Uh, the one mistake and you're out is a problem. And so, um, and again, it's that stuff's not simply a problem. Uh, I, and I told stories. I mean, we would have people, you know, whether you were near Fallujah. Um, uh, yeah, listen to this. During the Battle of Fallujah, so <clears throat> there's chat rooms that mirror radio nets, right? And so it might have been the Division TAC-1. So these are all the regiments and separate battalions in the division, that are talking, or it might have been the 1st Marine Regiment who was responsible for a piece of the Fallujah area during the Battle of Fallujah. You would look in there, and normally, so that is the um, the regimental um, subordinate commands, right? So it's the, it's the battalions, the infantry battalions, it might be a tank battalion there. It might be an LAR battalion attached to them. So it's their operations officers, their intel officers, maybe their logistics watch chiefs that are keeping an eye on what's going on in the battlefield. So, you know, it might be a dozen to 20 people on that net, the different people that are watching it. There would be over 200 people in, that, in those rooms. And this is all these people from around the division and MEF that are watching what's going on. Right at that level, seeing the radio traffic back and forth of what's going on. That's how far you can extend the screwdriver. And then you would see, you know, something that you didn't really recognize. Well, like, what is that? And then you'd right click on it, and it, it would be somebody from the Department of Defense, from the Pentagon watching. And you're like, holy shit. And so that's how far the, the, uh, the screwdriver can go. Right? And then. Now they're watching your video feed, and they're watching your, let's say they go down to the battalion level. Okay, they go down to the battalion level, and they're watching the battalion conversation and watching a drone feed. Again, so there's a, the, the 8,000-foot screwdriver telling you, you know, what to do. And the commanding officer knows they're watching. So, anyway... Um, and, and if you're a professional, you know, you got to stay out of their business. You got to let them execute because there's a whole lot of minor details that are going on out there that you don't know about. So let them do their thing. And that's a sign of a mature military that in the midst of that, um, they do that. They restrain themselves and they allow the, the leader you know, to lead. But brutal. Anyway, be interesting to see what happens. Uh, the, if the American military is going to truly commit to fight tonight, uh, some of this shit has to change. And again, 
to include the promotion of the high-end conformist. Because that's what you're left with when everybody who's got an opinion, everybody who's not afraid to take a risk, you know, makes a mistake, and they get, they get shown the door. So, on that note, this program repeats itself momentarily. Have a great day. Uh, if I can help you or somebody um, close to you that's struggling with life after trauma, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, all the data on both the posttraumaticwinning.com website and the All Marine Radio website come to me. Um, and I'd be more than happy to help you. So, I'm Mike McNamara, the All Marine Radio, right here on the All Warrior Radio Network. How uh, Have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow.